32 counties, 32 questions. My name is Una. I'm all alone. And this is United Ireland. Every week, we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it takes us. This week's county, football. This week's question, did the World Cup change women's sport forever? Andrea is away, so I have free reign to discuss her favourite topic, women's soccer. In the aftermath of the Women's World Cup, a game changer in so many ways, with the USA emerging victorious, creating global sporting icons, or at least an icon. I'm not going to the fucking White House. <laughs> no, I'm not going to the White House. And Megan Rapino, has it changed women's sport forever? Kind of feels like something's in the air. I watched the final in Street 66 in Dublin. Shout out to them. There was delicious vegetarian pizza. There were people cheering Rapino. There were many lesbians wondering how much money she spends on silver shampoo. I also met a nice American ultramarathon running ornithologist called Brittany. That's what happens when you watch sport in a gay bar, people. The World Cup also gave me some of my favourite tweets of all time, including, all this time I thought I hated football. Turns out I just hate men, which is definitely one of the greatest and most problematic uh, pieces of commentary on football. Today, we're going to be talking about whether this this World Cup has changed women's sport forever. No county this week, just planet football. Joining us to discuss this, including very happy producer Andrew Mangan, although we're not talking about Arsenal, will be Miguel Delaney, the chief football writer for the London Independent, a mild homeboy from the Sunday Tribune days, and Elaine Bucko Buckley of RTE, who has been at the core of that broadcaster's really fantastic coverage and analysis of the tournament. Let's get to it. Referee whistle noise here. Now to the week that was. One of the biggest stories that has been rolling for years is continuing to gather a different kind of urgency. Jeffrey Epstein has been arrested. If you've been following this story, you'll know that there is some serious shit coming down the line. Jeffrey Epstein is a billionaire guy, has many friends in many high places, including uh, Donald Trump and Bill Clinton. And he has pled not guilty to charges of uh, sex trafficking conspiracy um, in Manhattan. He was arrested at the weekend uh, in New Jersey. I think he was coming off his private uh, jet um, on the allegations of sexually exploiting and abusing dozens of minor girls. Now, this is an interesting one journalism wise because um, the really the publication behind uh, um, a lot of the coverage of this has been uh, the Miami Herald and Julie K. Brown a reporter there, reporter there she wrote this amazing series which you should really go back and check out called Perversion of Justice and she's been doggedly um, pursuing uh, this story ever since also um, worth noting another journalist who's been um, on it for, for a good while is Vicky Ward who wrote this really interesting um, Twitter thread this week about how she has been trying to f- trying to follow this story and the difficulties that she's faced on it. Uh, she wrote a profile on Epstein for Vanity Fair um, a good few years ago now, 
And this week she's been on Twitter basically talking about how difficult it was to get that over the line and how, in fact, um, some of the allegations were um, removed from her copy um, by uh, the editor at the time, very, very famous editor, Graydon Carter. He kind of cut the testimony of um, one of the people she had interviewed, Maria Farmer, her mother and her sister from the piece. Um, And she, Vicky Ward talks about confronting Graydon Carter about this. And that Carter's answer was he's sensitive about the young women with regard to Epstein. Vicky Ward on Twitter was saying that she's so often thought about those women and about the story. And she says, and I quote, the thing about Jeffrey Epstein is that people knew this. See Trump's comment back in 2002 with about Epstein liking and she quotes beautiful women, many of them on the younger side. Now, Vicky Ward says um, basically you know, if you thought Me Too was powerful in the Hollywood sense, uh, she says, just wait for the fallout from this. There is much more to come. Um, And that she tried to expose Epstein and was silenced. Uh, She says that everybody knew about, um, everybody who knew about Epstein was silenced by people with more money and power and influence. Now that silence is over. This is going to be uh, one of the biggest stories of the year. Um, And it is going to be everywhere. And the ramifications are massive when you look at actually who his connections are stretching all the way to the White House, to the British royal family, to the upper echelons of billionaire celebrities and so on. So that is a major thing that we are going to be checking back in with later in the podcast series. Another uh, local story that was kind of rolling over the weekend as Longitude was happening was this bizarre alert by the US Embassy um, for people to kind of a security alert essentially or safety alert for US citizens um, with regards to potential violence at Longitude obviously at the time it was kind of laughed out of it I mean was this some kind of crossed wires thing that because Gardaí were doing increased checks at a gig which they always would be at an outdoor concert that maybe somebody had picked up on it wrong was it a, a you know, an incident of basically racially profiling a festival because obviously Longitude has really, really great um, rap, hip hop, grime uh, headliners and, uh, you know, what was going on. And um, MCD, you know, understandably just said, look, we don't, you know, this is kind of a nonsense thing. Cut to um, a night over the weekend in Dublin at, at the Lost Lane uh bar and venue which people you know used to be Lily's and there was this incident where a bunch of uh, young people tried to kind of storm the door and then the guard they found all these weapons uh, stashed around Grafton Street I mean the whole thing is absolutely bizarre so that's still rolling um, Connor Lally has been writing about it in the Irish Times worth checking that out um, now whether that violence or, or you know thwarted violence was connected to Longitude is another question uh, that's not actually clear um, but by all means uh, everyone had a fab time at Longitude I would have gone you know I listened to all of the artists playing um, <laughs> you know in my private home but uh, you know there comes a time where you do have to say I am too old for this and um I am going to feel ridiculous in the crowd and I do not have my three outfits ready to um, display on Instagram nor my elaborate eyeshadow game or whatever. So I stayed at home. But I was watching vicariously through various people's Instagram stories and it looked fab. I would have really uh, liked to see Cardi B. Um, and actually well done to the promoters for managing to draft in those placements in the forms of uh, form of Stormzy and that kind of stuff because it was difficult times especially with Isaac Rocky being detained in Sweden for uh, what seems slightly unfair uh, on him 
uh, that story is probably going to roll too. Another thing that happened this week that I'm very excited about are these new photos coming from the set of Little Women, which basically seems to be algorithmically put together um, in the best way possible for things that I would be interested in. First of all, Saoirse Ronan, um, Queen of Carlo. And also in Little Women is Meryl Streep and Emma Watson and Laura Dern. And then that guy that everyone loves that I just don't understand why, Timothy Chalamet. Um, I just don't get it. Like, I just don't understand why people dig him. I, I don't I, no. Um But of course, crucially, the director on this uh, picture is Greta Gerwig, who I just love so much. And of course, Saoirse and Tim, Tim, Timothy or Timothy or whatever coming uh, back together with her after their brilliant film that they all made together, Lady Bird. So be excited about that. Something else I'm excited about is your love and support and our gratitude. Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. Please give us some cash to help keep this podcast going. It's hard work, takes a lot of time and we need to make it pay for itself. And we can only do that with your support massive shout out to everybody who has supported us so far you are just brilliant and also to the folks who are getting in touch uh, with myself and Andrea week in week out with their feedback and their thoughts on the podcast especially to like Anthony Remedy and Keen O'Brien and Colm Keen and people like that we love hearing from you please everyone continue to tweet us with your suggestions ideas and thoughts on the episode and give us a few quid there will yous This week's question is, did the World Cup change women's sport forever? Miguel Delaney, welcome to United Ireland. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, you're one of these um, international football writing honchos and have a lot of perspectives on the tournament, which we'll get into. What are your main takeaways from it, though, now that the dust has settled on the US win? Um, So first of all, from a purely football perspective, I think usually when World Cup winners um, through history, they've usually set a certain template from the sport. I, I don't think that's the case this time. I think the tournament is very interesting from that point of view in that the American team maybe define an approach that, in, as regards the evolution of tactics and the, and the way the game is played, could be about kind of passing the history a little bit. And that is also connected to the fact, maybe the wider issue, that this had been built up as a breakthrough tournament for the women's game. And I think that's exactly what it was. The viewing figures and attendance proved that, uh, demolishing many kind of tedious old arguments from middle-aged white men about women's sport. And more importantly, the response to the tournament, I think, proves that. I mean, if you compare it to Canada four years ago, which I suppose, you know, obviously kind of laid the, uh, the path for this. But I think maybe... I mean, coming from an English perspective, which is where I'm based and where the paper I work for is based, many clubs four years ago, many of the major clubs were completely caught cold by the impact of the 2015 World Cup, whereas that hasn't been the case this time. Uh, only on Monday, we received a uh, press release from Chelsea about how the club seeks to kind of, you know, really build on what's been said about the women's team, the comments of Gareth Southgate, and that they're going to move. One of the first games of the season being played uh, in, their, in the actual Stamford Bridge Stadium. The same applies to Manchester City. With Arsenal, they're, they're not playing their, uh, their games in the Emirates, but the team is playing one match before, uh, before the men's team in the Emirates Cup. And so, yeah, I think, I think it completely has been the, the breakthrough tournament that, that, many, uh, that many felt it would be. I think a lot of people who've never watched much kind of um, 
soccer when women are playing it we're probably surprised at the quality of football I mean even myself as a woman who is watching women playing sport I often do sometimes have a lens with uh, that I'm conscious that I'm watching a gender play soccer that I don't traditionally watch as much but that lens completely fell away with regards to the quality um, of the football being played Um, What were you hearing from your peers? I mean, most of of the people who write about football um, in major outlets are guys. I mean, what were what were the blokes um, you were talking to talking about? Any any perceptions of quality completely fell away. And I think it's the case with with any basically any sporting event. Once a tournament or a game produces engaging storylines, which which essentially based on who you're rooting for or, uh, or, or how it pans out. Uh, all, all, anything like that basically just completely fades away. Uh, the, the one thing I think actually some men who were covered in the tournament did mention was maybe they found a little difficulty in, or not, not, not difficulty, that, that, that's unfair to say. Maybe they were very self-conscious sometimes in how they were writing about it, uh, I suppose because of the fact that they were maybe white men commenting women. But again, that, that completely faded once just once the tournament gets into it, into its groove. Yeah, and I think that's something that, um, you know, female sports people often say is that they know um, things are changing when actually they're getting it in the neck from sports journalists. Yeah. I know that's something that the um, Irish rugby, w- women's rugby team, for example, have said that, the, that when the likes of, um, you know, uh, Gavin Comiskey or people like that were really giving them stick over line outs or something like that they felt okay well now we're actually being treated equally because we're getting the same sort of interrogation um, that men get but at the same time you got yourself in, in some hot water <laughs> Miguel uh, we were talking about this this yesterday with regards to your, your comment about the US team's cockiness and what I was saying to you is that I think it's interesting how, I mean, I was cheering for the USA. I, you know, don't ordinarily because of, of obviously this perception of arrogance or whatever. But mm. th- there's maybe a piece missing that people don't see with regards to um, the lesbian or queer element of that team, that they have harnessed a fandom um, far be- beyond the sport or brought in um, gay female fans or, or LGBT female fans I- into it. And that I was saying to you, what, what you may characterise as cockiness could just be like lesbian swagger. Yeah, I think that's probably completely true and maybe something people overlook. But yeah, I think almost this debate points to uh, what we're talking about in the sense that many people, uh, many people who would generally support, I, mean, I suppose any, anyone that's uh, that's watching the Women's World Cup in the first place would be uh, of this view, I think. But anyone that support the kind of political stances of players like Rapinoe and what the, what the US team stand for as a team still found on a purely sporting level um, say particularly the behaviour around the tiling game, just off-putting, and I, I think that, that in itself maybe illustrates the tension as well in terms of uh, what, when when there is a, a developing sport in that regard. That th- th- there's there's almost this issue between the media of the tension between promoting it but also treating it just as sport. And I, I do think in general that this this was a tournament that were that that was that was squared quite neatly, and I think that's partly because so many media have, particularly in England anyway, have actually have realised. The, I suppose, the value of uh, of investing in women's sports coverage. I mean, if you look, I suppose, a, a typical case here, maybe the Daily Telegraph, who are maybe a paper not always lauded for particularly progressive views in England politically, and yet they probably had the most progressive approach to covering women's sport with the, with the amount they've invested in covering the Women's World Cup, particularly in basically sending out all their major writers 
to uh, to report on it. And, and as as well as that, like with regards to that uh, press release, let's say that that you and other um, sports journalists got from Chelsea, you know, the heat is very much on um, soccer played by women right now. The branding power has reared its head. Um, that will obviously see uh, various investment from different quarters come. Like, what are you? What do you think around the commercial value and the branding value and advertising value that this tournament has brought, and and how that will manifest, you know, over the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, this is this is something we co- cover a lot um, because I suppose how central is to the funding of sport. But every, everything you hear from people in the industry is that a lot of brands and a lot of advertisers want to now be associated with women's sport because it, it, it has that cachet, it has that value. And again, and I think that that shows how quickly and how far things have changed in, in, in quite a short time. So I think it is something you will see more of. Um, but again, I suppose... I mean that that doesn't mean everything is is solved. That's what I, I saw in England. The target is to have attendances at an average of of two thousand for twenty 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 one. There's a little bit of a kind of a, a cycle here that that does go back, I suppose, to debate about women's football being banned in England for so long and how the media didn't cover it. So we get coverage in that. There there is a, a, something that needs to be squared in the sense that these days, basically, media outlets will report on anything that as popular i mean that that's what it comes down to anything that gets clicks but there's almost a self-perpetuation issue here and that the more you cover something the more clicks and interest it would generate so while i have heard from from some peers that compared to the compared to the women's world cup the english domestic league in england at least certainly not the case in spain or italy still doesn't generate the interest to maybe warrant full investment in the way i suppose the, the um the, even the the men's championship is covered that it, it, it is now worth uh, pouring more into that because because it, it, it will the interest will follow. You mentioned Spain initially there. How do you see things panning out in those two places uh, over the next while? Uh, well, I mean, the Spanish thing is very interesting. I think um, well, I, I mean, the, the way attendance records have just fallen like dominoes the past few years is indicative of a, of a huge cultural shift there. Um, for football culture, I mean, I'm half Spanish myself. For football culture that was for a very long time very kind of macho. <laughs> um, personified by, by Sergio Ramos in that way. Uh, not, not to say, of course, that Ramos himself um, uh, articulates these views. But, yeah, I, I think it ultimately illustrates that the, the, Spanish, the Spanish game are going to invest as much and treat the, the, the women's game as seriously as they do men. And I think that could have, could have huge repercussions for the sport. And this points to what I'm getting, what I was saying as regards the, um, the USA team. I think the, the culture of US football in general has been, unlike Europe, I think the coaching has been a little bit cookie culture, which is not to say that um, you know the individual talent uh, doesn't flourish beyond that, but there's almost there's a mechanical quality to, uh, I think, how they produce their players. Um, and I think that's been especially conspicuous in the, in the men's game. It probably hasn't been as conspicuous in the women's game yet, because obviously uh, the big European countries haven't invested much into the, into the development of women's players. But I think that's about to change, and I think that's what that's why we'll see maybe a huge shift in the, you know, the tactical uh, evolution of the women's game. But, I mean, the, the U.S. team kind of reminded me a little bit of France in the men's World Cup last year. Tried to determine that they clearly had the greatest collection of players, the greatest collection of talent, and yet it didn't feel like their approach really maximised those individual talents. It felt a very kind of calculated, pragmatic game. 
based on kind of athleticism in, in, in the same way as the French men's team la- last year, in that you always felt this team should be capable of much, much better football. And really, if they're truly maximising uh, their talent and maybe a more expansive, expressive game, I think they would really have their, you know, their superiority would have looked much more emphatic. Um, and I think that that's ultimately why games like the semi-final against England, I, th- I mean, I, I really do think they're essentially a much better team than England still. And yet, that game was much closer than it should have been. Um, but, yeah, but, I mean, but I, this, go on. Sorry, go on, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I thought England had a chance there. You know, really, they, they you know, kind of should have, won, should have won that match. But what you're saying about... Um, the what the USA football actually looks like is interesting because in in so many ways with regards to soccer the the US basically just tries to make these facsimiles of the um very mechanical type of football played and as you say that obviously like US soccer uh which was very much patronized from a European perspective in terms of the men's game and and this kind yeah. of creating even fan culture like you know doing impressions of of terrorist chanting t- chanting at matches yeah. and all that kind of stuff but i suppose the difference being that the women's game um you know, historically has been much more uh, important at a grassroots level. Yeah. But do yeah, you think I, do you think that the USA, like, has peaked in some ways? Not, not peaked, because I think they have, I mean, there's so much well, I mean, be, even beyond the kind of equal pay argument, there's still, um, which, which would fully support the women on, um, there's, there's so much wealth in US sport that they can respond to this. But I think they do have a problem with this whole pay-to-play structure, which essentially may be why... Which essentially maybe cuts off uh, soccer from a large portion of the population in that regard. But as regards to how the game is played, um, I I don't think it necessarily uh, facilitates a bottom-up philosophy to football. Uh, Explaining some some of the maybe the profile of the players from a purely technical level. Whereas if Europe takes it seriously, because there isn't this pay-to-play structure. Obviously, it's about you know it's it's essentially about integrating kids into a proper philosophy of the game i mean and this is how spain and clubs like barcelona have so marked themselves out in the men's game over the past 20 years and really become a dominant force is because of the the, the real deep strength of the philosophy of football that the players are coaching i mean it's it's you know it's a proper cultural thing that they're you know <laughs> the play, players are intro- and players are introduced into this style and this has multiple advantages right down to the point that when but by the, by the time you're in your late teens and young players are are properly introduced to tactical outlooks, they're, they're able to almost unconsciously integrate into those tactical outlooks because it's, it's so deep-seated. Uh, and I think that is something that will become much more influential in the women's game over the next 10 years because the big European clubs who really promote this approach are, ta- are now going to take it so much more seriously. Can you explain the pay-to-play structure for people who may not be familiar with this? Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, it's that uh, kids in America, if they want to take their, you know, obviously, of course, initially, soccer is played by school children just as as a game they play. But if they want to take that further and get properly, um, you know, properly professional coaching, they have to pay for it. Uh, be, because there, there, there isn't that, that culture of the clubs taking on, taking on young players in the way we see virtually all over the world. I think it, it does mean that in America, it, the sport actually can be quite elitist in a way that is absolutely not the case anywhere else in the world where the sport is ultimately uh, universalist and 
debate every single club there, every, every single club and virtually everywhere else in the world seeks to kind of take on young players, whereas that's the, the opposite is really the case in the USA, where it, it's, it's the other way around. And I suppose maybe this has led to a wider debate in the team. I mean, I have seen this brought up in America a little bit, but it's one of those you're almost kind of a, <laughs> afraid to touch, I suppose, as a middle-aged white man. That I suppose the, the racial profile of the uh, the American women's team has been questioned. But I, I suppose that is just a, a direct effect of the uh, of of how the game is developed. And finally, Miguel, who is the player of the tournament for you? I'm tempted to say Alex Morgan. But I suppose, given given the impact, I know this this is obviously a bit of a pat answer, but I I, I think I think it's, it's all the more relevant given on the same day we had the, the the frankly shameful scenes of the Brazilian men's national team essentially embracing a fascist in Bolsonaro. So for Rapinoe to score and then so stand against a similar figure in Trump, and obviously with that connected to her general performance and how she made herself the figure of the tournaments. Um, as well as well as just basic performance, yeah, I think it has to be Rapinoe. Nice one. And I think and it's interesting. I think she's. I, I, I think this, you know, cuts what we're talking about in, in general. But Rapinoe has become an identifiable worldwide figure. Maybe, um, maybe well, you know, that's a little bit unfair because I think Marta was pretty much the same for Brazil. But yeah, but but still, I think her profile now is is immense. And I suppose again, and this cuts to one of the other debates at a tournament in that in terms of media profile and how recognisable they are, there must be one of the biggest gaps between b- b- between uh, the, US, the US women's national team in that regard and what they actually earn, which I suppose illustrates the folly of what they're being paid as well. Thanks so much for joining us, Miguel. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you. To kick off this discussion about how seismic the World Cup was for football and for women's sport in general, I'm going to be having a chat with Elaine Bucko Buckley. Elaine is an absolute sporting nerd, and I say that with the utmost respect. She is a friend. She is somebody I admire hugely in terms of her breadth of knowledge. She is previously the co-founder of the Fair Game podcast. But for this tournament, she was at the core of RTE's uh, very highly praised coverage uh, of the World Cup. And so we are going to now take a deep dive, Bucko style, into the Women's World Cup. I am sitting with the very busy... Elaine Buckley, a.k.a. Bucko, um, a sports fiend, an amazing um, professional in the sports media arena who has been spending uh, the last number of weeks working intensely on the Women's World Cup and is now chilling out, hopefully. Um, Bucko, welcome to United Ireland. Thanks for having me. Overall, what are your takeaways from the tournament kind of big picture and also what were your moments in the tournament as well? I think myself and a couple of the panellists and analysts that I was working with on the World Cup coverage actually sat down on Sunday night with a pint and kind of started to begin to talk about the impact that this tournament has had and our general consensus was it's going to take a hell of a long time to process it because it has been seismic. And I think that tells you everything. Like I, I, I haven't even begun to properly dissect it all properly, because um, you know we've just come out of a bubble of a month-long feast of football, fifty odd matches, so many talking points on the pitch, 
so many other ones off the pitch and that conversations that have to carry on beyond it. But I think, you know, at the at the end of it all, the fact that USA came out champions, love them or loathe them, it's hugely significant for women's football. And why so? Like the question that we're asking on this podcast is, has this tournament changed women's sport forever? What would be your answer to that? And why do you think that um, their victory is so seismic? USA went into this tournament with an awful lot of pressure on them in in every aspect. First of all, in terms of their talent, in terms of the expectation that they should win this. They are the best team in the world. They are the standard bearers. They're coming into it as the defending champions. And they were the hot favourites. Now, they were at pains to, say, to stress that France were the favourites, but they didn't mean that. It was mind games pre-tournament. They also, in the past couple of years, have been going through a really tumultuous time with their own federation. Um, you know, initially when four players got together to, to make a pay dispute claim, which has now escalated to the entire World Cup squad taking their federation to court. And where this was parked before the World Cup was that they, they, they filed their lawsuit. USA Soccer came back with certain challenges and complaints and the players issued a statement about a month before going to France saying... We got basically paraphrasing here, obviously, in legal speak. We got to go play a World Cup now. We'll see you in court. And their case will be so much stronger now, the fact that they're coming back with this trophy. And to have that kind of pressure and expectation on top of the fact that you're the team to beat, it's a it's it's absolutely immense. It it has annoyed me how people have perceived them to be arrogant and cocky. They are I can't, like I can't think of any other team who just who has just excellence permeate everything that they do than the US women's soccer team. Everything they do is going after a record. Um be it, you know, in their opening game against Thailand, they absolutely crushed them. But they they set a new record for most goals scored in a World Cup. Alex Morgan equaled a 20-year-old record for goals scored in a World Cup game. Everything they do is to make history, is to take the next step. It will probably kill them that they didn't score within the first 12 minutes of that final to keep that record going because they've done it in every game previous. They've now become the second team to win back-to-back trophies. You can absolutely bet anything that they are already talking about three in a row and being the first team to do it. It's just, it's just ingrained in them. It's the culture that's been there since 1999 when the 99ers, as, as the US team are called, basically self-promoted a World Cup on home soil and and promised that they would fill those stadiums if US soccer let them do it. And they did it. And they played out their final in front of 91,000 fans, won the World Cup, penalty shootout, iconic Brandy Chastain moment. So this is ingrained in this team. And the fact that they have now won it just makes their case so, so, so much stronger. What lessons can other countries and federations take from what they've done? Because I saw someone say something interesting that, you know, um, the excellence in USA soccer is not just about individual talent. It's actually public policy almost. The support that they've received, the funding they've received. You know, is it possible to replicate that over in, in different countries? You know, um, Miguel Delaney was talking about um, the Spanish game and, and the Italian game as well coming up and the French game as well. You know, and it's interesting to see the English game, um, you know, I mean, I, I thought they, the the English team could have easily, not easily, but potentially won that semi-final. Yet 
the edge was slightly lacking maybe the fitness the 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 excellence that the USA had you just were looking at a cut above can other countries do that can they beat them has the USA peaked I think this tournament has shown that the chasing pack are getting closer but I think the finer margins at the moment still are completely in USA's favour and this isn't in even in relation to this particular group of players or Jill Ellis it stems from government legislation the, t- the Title IX leg- legislation that was brought in to US sports decades ago whereby if you are an athlete and you go to college as a woman your team will get exactly the same resources as the men's team in your sport so if you've got two basketball teams in a college at whatever level they will get the same amount of resources and this is government legislation it is absolutely just systemic I've had friends go over on hockey and soccer scholarships to colleges in the US and they are essentially treated like professional athletes in the college setup. So when you're starting that kind of experiencing that kind of treatment as a college athlete at age 18 and you're there from age 18 to 24 playing NCAA soccer at a really high level and the the, the players that college soccer has produced and then you go on to play start your league career you're you've already got this experience behind you that just doesn't exist in other countries. So they're really, really far ahead in that regard. Now, when we talk about Spain and Italy and, and England to a certain extent, that those kind of success stories where countries have really invested in their club structure, that is absolutely brilliant. But it's about getting players to the level they need to be to play in those leagues. And that is where the USA are so far ahead of the game. It's all about their college structure. And any of the players, even if you go back to the 1999 team, all of those players would have played under Title IX legislation and had had all access to all those facilities in college as well. So there is no quick fix for catching up and competing with the USA. It is sporting cultural overhaul in countries that is, that is required. And they've shown, like they're the standard bearers, they've shown, you know, they've shown what great football looks like and they've also shown that they are not as invincible as they once were like they won last they won the, the 2015 World Cup um, like they scored five goals in the final they were 4-0 up after 15 minutes whereas now other teams are catching up but it's when you know when you have France losing to them 2-1 you have England losing to them 2-1 Netherlands losing to them 2-0 you know they're not big score lines, but it's when you drill back down into club structure college structure underage structure, grassroots structure, that's where they're so far ahead and that's where other countries need to put in the work to catch up. As somebody who works in the sports media, um, one of the things that people were saying that really elevated this tournament was the coverage, the level of analysis, um, the classic, you know, if you build it, they will come mentality that I think a lot of uh, broadcasters and um, a lot of print um, actually took as well. You know, we are going to cover this properly and I really think that RTE excelled in this. You know, the the level of coverage and the analysis was really quite excellent. And the fact that you could just, you know, turn on TV or the RTE player and watch the matches, you know, which is uh, shouldn't be a novelty and actually became very much a norm very quickly. Um, as somebody who was working in the middle of that, what were you guys um, discussing around the type of analysis you were going to provide and the type of coverage? And how do you feel about how people have responded to that? 
Um, I think first of all, in terms of the quantity of the matches that was shown, I think that's really important and huge credit must go to TG Carr as well as RT Sport. Um, RT Sport were the rights holders and it was a, a co-broadcast with TG Carr to ensure that every game would be on free to air for the duration of, of the tournament. And it's the first time that the Women's World Cup has been shown on Irish TV. So to go from nothing to everything was such a huge leap. But I'm a firm believer that you can't just dip into a tournament in the last eight. Like you gotta be seeing teams in their in their first group match, seeing, you know, a team like Australia where there was such expectation on them and, you know, they they lost their first game. That was the that was the biggest shock of of the group stages. So the fact that it was being shown in its entirety put us, I think, really very, very much on the front foot because when we came on air first there was actually very little by way of bigger picture discussion in our opening programme. We maybe did about five minutes on it and then it was straight into Norway v Nigeria, tactically, how are they going to set up? And that is the theme that continued for the whole tournament. For any game that we showed, it was about the football. We weren't trying to solve, you know, um, equal pay disputes. We weren't trying to solve the, the bigger picture issues in our coverage. We covered the football and those stories came up because we were covering the football. And like I I was programme editor on I think our first three programmes and then I had an evening off to, to actually watch one at home on the couch one night and I was sitting at home watching it and Jackie Hurley was presenting it and we had three panellists in studio and it just hit me that this is the exact same as if I was watching the Men's World Cup at home last year. The exact same, down to the facilities we had in the studio, down to like the animated player walk-up graphics that come up on screen, all those things that just gave it, gave the coverage such gloss. It was exactly the same as the men's game gets. Mm. So in terms of optics, it was I was... I was just really, really proud of that, that it was treated equally. And then you have to really really commend the people that we had sitting in the chairs in studio you know where, where we had people like Lisa Fallon who's just taken a job with Chelsea Women's FC like one of the best football minds I've ever worked with Emma Byrne a player you know who had who's just been inducted into the FAI Hall of Fame never really got the credit she deserved for the career that she had at Arsenal for 17 years because nobody really knew that she was over there nobody knew Arsenal had a women's team nobody knew that they had won a domestic quadruple so like for someone like her who's now retired to be in the pundits chair just absolutely top notch someone like Richie Sadlier who covers the men's game at all levels and was just so completely and thoroughly invested in this tournament and gave it the exact same treatment just really proud that the football was first and foremost but that we actually managed to cover some bigger picture conversations around it as well. And the viewing figures, I think, spoke for themselves because, you know, people were tuning into this for the first time. And, you know, you have the people who have always watched women's football who will watch it, but you also had just have people who just love football. And I think the one of the most, one of the best conversations, like a lot of people have been talk, talking to us about it and kind of commending the coverage in that, but I think the most important um, endorsement of it that I got was um, chatting to my dad after the final when he told me Tobin Heath was my player of the tournament. I just think she's been exceptional. The Italians were my favourite team for what they did and how much they've come on, but she was my player of the tournament and I'd give second place to Crystal Dunn. The Americans are just brilliant. And I was just like, 
what is this conversation? Like, this is a man who's never seen a women's football game before this tournament, who, just because it was on RTE or TG Cahar, the first four channels on his TV, he was watching it. Mm-hmm. And he watched the entire tournament. Yeah, that's the classic case of if you put it on, people will watch. Like, I had similar conversations with um, my mum was like, you know, when we went for dinner the other night and she was like, oh, are you watching the semi-final or did you watch the match or where are you watching the final? You know, and I would have, uh, you know, conversations with her about um, Gaelic football and hurling for sure uh, and less so about rugby, much less so about men's soccer, yet she was watching the um, the the football on on RTE as well, so I I totally get that it's a it's a it is um you know a, a, sh- a shift even when you look at if you're talking about equity in terms of um, pay or in terms of um, you know people taking things seriously whatever that means it's also about equity of coverage right mm-hmm. absolutely and it's I just think it's so important for people like. You know, you have old cynics and you have all these old tropes that people like, oh, the standard's not good or the goalkeeping is terrible. It's just not fast enough. It's not skillful. I actually think it was such a myth-busting World Cup because, you know, the opening night, France against Korea, that French team came out and put on such an incredible performance. They scored goals from set pieces. They scored goals from play. People saw like a player like Amandine Henri play for the first time. It's just like, who is this woman? She is incredible. So you really do have to, you really just have to, like pe- people have made judgments on women's football in the past based on little nuggets they've picked up here and there. But when you actually put it in front of them, no, here's the 24 top teams who are going to compete in this World Cup. Just watch them and then form your opinions. And some of the other interesting things actually I've heard back by way of feedback was the lack of cynicism in the game. You know, there was only one yellow card issued in the whole tournament for simulation. So that's diving or crowding the referee and shouting at them, basically. Um, so that it's... I. It, that's huge because that's that's a, that's one thing that people really give out about in the men's game and it just wasn't even a factor in this. And, you know, people who, who, who have said, you know, the really jaded cliche of, the, of like, well, the goalkeepers in the women's game are, are just terrible. It's well, not, look at the Dutch keeper in the final. Like. It's, it's, it's just not true. It was just something people said. And then it's something that other people pick up on and they've never even seen a match. So I, I think a lot of those kind of old tropes were just put to rest as well because the quality was there and it was great to watch. Let's put um, my favourite lens on it, which is the queer lens. Uh, We were talking earlier, um, obviously I need to make everything um, about uh, this, Um, but we were speaking um, before this interview about how my experience of watching it was not just an experience of watching great sports, not just experience of watching great athletes, not just an experience of watching an exciting tournament, not just an experience of watching women, um, but also an experience of watching a lot of um, out- um, primarily lesbian and bisexual or queer women um, with, in such contrast to the men's game. Um, and I always say, you know, there there isn't uh, homophobia in football. There's men's homophobia in football. And we know, and you know, um, as somebody who plays sport your, yourself and who's been involved in team sport, you know, for all of your life, that the experience um, for queer women is very different to the experience of, of queer men in terms of visibility. So, you know, am I over-egging things by thinking that this was also a, a massive moment of visibility for queer women as well? I mean, because that's how I was i was kind of watching it too. It was like an added bonus for me. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, I think it's... Um, I think, well, I think the player you're probably most obviously re- referring to is Megan Rapino. And, you know, when we say that players in this tournament were standing for more than football, she is the ultimate example of it. Um, she is one half of Sporting's ultimate power couple with WNBA's Sue Bird. Like, just imagine the trophy cabinet in that <laughs> house. Um, but, you know, then... When when you think of like the fine take the final in isolation and you have a player like Kelly O'Hara just run to the stands and kiss a woman. I don't know who she was, a girlfriend, a wife, I, I don't know, but it's definitely someone who's not just a friend or a fan. Um and I had no idea that she might be in any way queer. So so seeing something like that, it it is when, when you're a queer woman yourself and you love sports so much, you do like to see yourself represented. And it does add an extra level of intrigue. But to go back to, to Megan Rapino and obviously what happened with um, with the interview emerging where she said, I'm not going to fucking White House. This team, before this World Cup ever began, took a stand for LGBT rights when one of their... They, last, uh, last year during Pride, when they were going to wear jerseys with Pride numbers on the back, and Jaylene Hinkle, who's who's a right-back who, who plays with them, North Carolina Courage, refused to wear the, the Pride jersey because she basically doesn't believe in... Gay, gay rights. Gay, yeah, <laughs> she doesn't believe in gay rights, let's call it what it is. And she left the team. And... You know, you, you, nobody really knows what went on behind the scenes, but you'd have to imagine, you know, there are several queer women in that squad and they stand up for each other. And, you know, they they have struggled to fill the right back position. You know, they've basically made Chris, turn Crystal Dunn into a defender to because they, they haven't been able to fill that spot. She's an exceptional footballer. But if you don't see your teammates as equal, you've no place being on that team. And, you know, this happened a year ago. That's just one example of how united they are in what they believe in. And it's going to be really interesting to see now if they do get invited to the White House, if they're going to go or if they're going to collectively refuse. Personally, I think they will collectively refuse. And I think, you know, you you can be an out and proud queer woman in a World Cup and win the golden boot and you can take your stand against the president and, and in interviews. But for something like that, and to bring your teammates with you and have that show of solidarity, I think it would be just so, so powerful. And finally, Bucko, what was your favourite moment of the tournament? Doesn't necessarily have to be a moment in a match, maybe something you um, experienced yourself um, throughout the coverage or a moment with your pals. Personally, I enjoyed um, your wife being interviewed on RT News <laughs> over in France talking about that maybe if, she, if she'd been watching these matches, she could have been playing there definitely could have happened for sure knowing the person she is um, but what what was a moment for you that when you look back at this period in your um, fandom and also in your professional life that you'll think that was really something Can I pick five? Yes Because <laughs> I, I have a lot I have a lot of football feelings in my heart um, I think first and foremost um, I think England's progress was really great to see um, for the reason being that, and probably a lot of people wouldn't have known this going into the tournament, but their captain, Steph Houghton, is one of my favourite footballers and has been for a long time. Um, there was talk that she might leave the football scene and maybe give, give, 
give up the captaincy all that last year when her husband was diagnosed with motor neuron disease. He's a footballer as well. He's had to retire and, you know, he's really, really ill. And she made the decision basically with his backing. You got to go play. You got to go win the World Cup. Now, they didn't win it, but she went and she led her team by such Im- impeccable example, put on such brilliant performances throughout, is the real defensive rock of that team. It broke my heart when she missed that penalty. When I saw her stepping up to take it, though, I was just like, this woman is incredible. I, th- I just think that personal story and what Steph represents, you know, the real heart and soul of that team who had such a great rise in the 2015 World Cup, seeing her play was so special. Massive, massive respect for Steph Houghton. Um, I think the Norwegian team and how they represented themselves um you know, they were in a tough group with, with France in it and all the talk in the build-up to the tournament was was about the player that wasn't with them, about Ada Hegerberg. And it just must have been infuriating. Like, you have this squad of 23 women going to play a World Cup and everyone's talking about the players who, who's not there for her own deeply personal reasons. But she hasn't played for the team for two years and they qualified without her. And they went out and put on an absolutely brilliant show. Played really, really, really good football. Carolyn Graham Hansen was one of the stars of the tournament for me and they won the only penalty shootout of the tournament and knocked Australia out. Huge result for them. Um, I think the success of Italy and Spain were hugely significant, um, particularly Italy, two countries who have in recent years really invested in their club system and they're reaping the rewards now. And like Spain... They were not far off that USA team in the re- in the uh, in the round of sixteen game. You know, two one, a contentious penalty. You know, they they really showed what they can do. And I think for a country like Ireland and countries like Scotland, you know, the other European nations who are part of the chasing pack, it's just such a good example to look to about what a bit of smart thinking and investment can can do for a country. Um, Marta in general um, <laughs> I mean Marta Marta is just um, for a long time she's been probably the only footballer that a lot of people could name and she's you know this was her fifth World Cup and everything Marta does is for a greater good like Marta turned down boot deals for this World Cup because she chose instead to wear the symbol for gender equality on her boots in that prime position where there'd normally be a Nike swoosh and after she scored uh, goals she would just stand on one foot and point at the gender equality symbol on on her boot like which is just such an incredible stand to take Um, she also became the first woman to score in five different World Cups and then when Brazil eventually met their end in the uh, in the round of 16 she in her post she was pulled for the super flash interview so this is like you've got you're taken away from your team huddle you've got a 90 second interview that you are contractually obligated to do with the FIFA broadcasting service and she used those 90 seconds to give the most impassioned plea to everyone at home watching in her country which incidentally was a record audience for, for Brazil for women's football and she gave this really impassioned interview right down the lens in Portuguese where she was she was like, I'm not going to be around forever. Christiane's not going to be around forever. Formiga's not going to be around forever. We need people to step up. We need you to value this more. And just basically a rally cry to the girls and women of Brazil 
to step forward and just fight for football. And it was just it was just such a mic drop moment. And that's what she did. She basically just said, um, cry in the beginning so you can smile in the end and then just walked off camera. It was just the most incredible moment of, of, of live TV. And I think, how many is that? That's four. Like I could go on all night, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, overall the recognition that it's an incredibly skillful game I think that really, really came across by the way people have have spoken about the semi-final tactically, how badly Phil Neville got it wrong and that he was called out for that. And people knew the positions that people should have been playing in and the players that should have come off the bench. You know, we're gone. We're gone so far beyond scoreboard journalism with this World Cup. It's about how games are won, who's matching up against who, who's scoring goals and who's doing all the dog work out the pitch to, to ensure that the goals happen. So you have players like Danielle van der Donk and Tobin Heath. They're now held in really high regard as playmakers. And I think that is so significant as well. Thanks so much for that, Bucko. And thank you for your time. And congratulations to you and your colleagues at RTE. I know um, people love giving um, RTE a, a kicking. And, you know, I do it as well. Um, but I think that the um, just the scope and the slickness of the coverage is really commendable. And I know you guys worked really hard. So well done. And uh, roll on 2023. Thanks very much. And watch the qualifiers. We're showing Ireland's qualifiers for the Euros coming up this September as well. So watch them. Go woman. Now it's time for Get in the Sea. And I have to say, I'm really enjoying the fact that I get to do all these fun bits that Andrea normally does. Um, that nevertheless require a good bit of thought and research indeed. My get in the sea this week are the insurance bosses who sat in front of Pierce Doherty at and rocked this committee and were grilled by him. I wrote my column about this on Monday in the Irish Times and this weird kind of discourse that happened around Maria Bailey falling off a swing and loads of people saying, well, you know, this is why insurance premiums premiums are so high because so many people make fraudulent or exaggerated claims. Not that we're saying that her claim, which was withdrawn, was either of those things. However, it did kick off a big discussion around it. Pierce Doherty uh, was kind of almost cross-examining in some kind of like law and order type court scene Um which is way more exciting than these committee hearings usually are. Uh, insurance bosses from Alliance and FBD and AXA and basically saying, well, if you're getting 20% of claims that are fraudulent, why aren't you reporting them to the Gardaí? Um, and they did not have very comprehensive answers, which makes you wonder um, whether we've been talking about the wrong kind of insurance fraud all along. So this week, under pressure, insurance bosses and the industry for not clarifying what's really going on, get in the sea. My fave bits this week, I have been watching season two of Good Girls. I really enjoyed season one and I feel like it didn't really get that much heat. This is the kind of drama, but kind of funny, kind of heist type uh, show with Christina Hendricks on Netflix. And season two is just knocking it out of the park. I mean, it's going to very melodramatic, Breaking Bad levels. And, uh, you know, 
there's so much action in it. The acting is fantastic. The music is brilliant. The directing is really great. So if you're looking for a good little binge or something or, you know, which is kind of uncommon this day, these days, which is like a TV series where shit is actually happening in it, apart from just kind of meandering along Good Girls season two action packed. My other fave thing was a very nice thing that happened um, to me. Uh, the Guilty Guilty Feminist podcast, which is a brill podcast. We're doing an event in the Royal Albert Hall on Sunday and Alison Spittle uh, read one of my poems called The Usses and I saw the photo of the audience and it was just giant and massive and that was very cool to hear. So thank you Guilty Feminist Podcast and Alison Spittle. You can read that poem in my Repeal the Eighth anthology, now a historical artefact but still available for sale. And half of my profits are still going to reproductive rights organisations in the north of Ireland. So buy it if you haven't already. My other fave bit is Lizzo coming to the Olympia on November 10th. If you are watching this after 9am on Friday, July 12th, you've probably already missed out on tickets because that's when they go on sale. She's just so brilliant. You know, I was listening to her stuff this morning and like, I can't really think of another pop act that really has just lashed out these three absolute monster hits in a row. Um, She's a total boss. I'm really, really looking forward to that gig if I can end up going. Um, So go Lizzo, you're brill. What else is brill? You giving this podcast money. I'm going to have to really get better at like trying to make more inventive links. But we are working our little touches off and we need your support. Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland doesn't cost much. Give us a hand. Uh, This is taking a lot of time out of our days, probably much more so than we originally anticipated. And we need to pay um, the production team involved and we need to make it financially viable. I know we're saying this every week. It's so snore, but um, we just actually need the money to make it continue. We don't want to end up in a situation where we can't continue to all 32 episodes. So take that as an absolute threat and piece of emotional blackmail. Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. This beautiful podcast where I'm all by myself. How was that? Was that good? That was impressive. Okay, thank you. That is produced by Andrew Mangan of Castaway Media. Susie Bennett has been on the ball this week, kicking ass, taking names. Thanks to the wonderful Crystal Clear for our music on tour now around the world. Sarah June Fox for our design and you for listening and all the beautiful patrons on Patreon. You can find links to all of our socials on our website, unitedirelandpodcast.com. And if you enjoy listening... Let us know. Even better than that, give us some cash. We have the paw out. Go to our Patreon account. And yes, it's my turn for a tuna chicken roll this week. And I'm picking a band that has really gone the distance. This is a new tune from Friendly Fires. It's Silhouettes. Massive summer vibes with this one. Enjoy the Irish humidity that is quite oppressive, yet still seasonal. I've been Una Mullally. This has been United Ireland and that was Planet Football and the Women's World Cup. Go on, Rapino. Rapino.